You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the House of Literature and to this conversation with Tori Peters and Karolina Tromp. My name is Madeleine Jedemetz. I work with the literary program here at the house. A few years ago, Tori Peters rocketed into the international literary scene with her debut novel, The Transition Baby, which is celebrated for its complex trans characters and for portraying a truthful picture of the New York trans scene. It is the first novel written by a trans woman to become the international, an international bestseller and is in many ways a socially and historically important book. But uh, first and foremost, of course, The Transition Baby is a wonderful piece of literature. It is deeply existential work about finding one's own place in the world, about belonging and about legacy. The novel explores complicated themes such as gender, parenthood and family and manages to be both serious, intelligent, relatable and really funny. As a guide through tonight's conversation about literature and identity, we have we are pleased to welcome author and literary critic Karolina Trump, who will meet Tori Peters on stage here in just a few minutes. But before that, we will have a short introduction by Kristina Maria Jentoft. She has been one of the most important voices in the Norwegian trans debate for over 10 years and works today as advisor for gender diversity at FRI. She's received uh, several awards for her work for the trans community here in Norway, and I'm very happy that she is with us here tonight to share her reflections on trans life and parenthood. So please welcome Kristina Jantoft. Thank you. I uh, feel like I got a heavy breathing just from walking up there. It's clear I came out just to dominate in women's sports. <clears throat> All right. Stop laughing. It's not funny. Yes, it is. I had a plan for coming out. The plan was formed in 2009 after a couple of failed attempts that resulted in me going so far into the closet that I could have found Narnia. I needed a plan to make sure it went right this time. That's how the what's, the how's, the when's, the all that's needed to be in order. No more just springing it on myself and whatever poor fucking girlfriend I happened to be with at the time like I'd done in the past. Everything was better with a plan. Now Captain Cold, a supervillain turned hero of the DC universe, once said, there are four rules you need to remember. Make the plan, execute the plan, expect the plan to go off the rails, throw away the plan. And yes, I am the kind of nerd who will quote comic book characters. I am trans after all. So I had my plan and I was sticking to it. My then girlfriend had been told by her doctor that she couldn't get pregnant. But apparently her body did not get that memo. Due date, April 2011. I had not expected the plan to go off the rails already. I had hardly begun executing the plan. For society, it would have been easier if I just threw away the plan altogether then. But I had already spent 20 years as a man. 20 years in pain. Not being able to focus on anything else than myself and my dysphoria any longer, how was, going to focus, how was I going to focus on being a parent? I would be a half-parent, not entirely there and not entirely anywhere else. So I chose the other option, and I stuck to the plan, even though it went off the rails. I knew there would be struggles as a transparent, and boy, there has been some struggles. But maybe with this choice, I would be mentally present to deal with the struggles. I was going to have 99 problems as a parent, but none of them were going to be Luft balloons or my dysphoria. When my kid was born, I signed as the father of the child. My girlfriend and I didn't know if we could cheese it and I could sign as the co-mother, but we didn't risk it. I had been living as myself, a woman, at home for about six months at this time. I was pursuing treatment, and I fa finally found queer spaces where I weren't rejected. But I was, the I was only open in safe spaces besides that. The plan was going forward as planned, not derailed, just on a different track entirely. Half a year after my daughter was born, I came out to my parents. Well, my dad, at least. My dad is a conservative businessman. 
a man who learned to give hugs around about the same time he learned how to put a smiley face in text messages. <laughs> the plan, uh, so I had to book a meeting with him via mail. <laughs> and after nervously telling him that I want to be a woman and I want you to call me Christine, he needed a couple of minutes and um, he paused and he mumbled, hmm, Mwaha. hmm. <gasps> All right. Hmm. Well, are you aware that there are some men who dress up as women for bedtime, you know, part-time? <laughs> and I informed them that, no, thank you, Father. I'm sort of looking for a full-time position at Womanhood Incorporated. <laughs> I usually try to use business terms with him. He seems to have an easier time understanding me if I do. I cho also chose not to pursue his knowledge of people who cross-dress part-time in bed further. <laughs> I didn't want him to fuck up my glorious moment of coming out. But being my dad, he did so anyways by ending the conversation and informing me that he and my mom was divorcing. <laughs> my glorious moment fucked yet again. A while after that, I broke up with my girlfriend, my other kid's mom. No, my kid's other mom, not my other kid's mom. <laughs> I'm spicy. <laughs> And since this comes up every time, me being trans had nothing to do with it. And I'm, yeah, enough about that. <clears throat> now for something completely different. Around comes the end of the plan. That's Christmas 2012, for those of you who read my blog. I'd technically been out for over two years at this point, but according to the plan, this was when I would come out to the world, also known as Facebook. <laughs> I was single. I had primary care of my daughter and my ex's dog for some reason, God knows why, <laughs> in addition to living out in the middle of nowhere in Björklangen, all alone. I'd already been outed by all my old wannabe gangster friends a couple of months previous after one of their girlfriends had found my not-so-anonymous blog, and I was scared of what they would do. These are not great conditions for coming out. But I had the plan, and most of it went better than expected. It helped that people realized that I'd been full-time for a while, and that their protests, they were way too late. The plan had worked, and the closest comparison I can make is that it's like being constipated for 20 years, and then suddenly, you, you had a nice trip to the bathroom. <laughs> now time skip to today. I've been with my new girlfriend for nine years. We lived together for eight. She's Aurora's stepmom, mom, stepdom, stepmom. <laughs> this is going great. Aurora's my daughter. She's Aurora's stepmom, and my ex lives with her husband out in Kongsberg. Shit place. My daughter goes there. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. My daughter goes there every other weekend. We're a team. We can discuss and put the kid first. This is our normal. And nothing we think about much when within the confounds of our own family. But the outside world, they think about it a lot. Sometimes I feel pulled back to the very beginning of my queer activism, where I had to use a little teaspoon to explain to people that, yes, there are many ways to be a family. And even though technically divorced parents with new partners isn't exactly a new concept in this country, throw queer into the mix and people seem to lose it. It's weird. Usually it's the lesbian part I have to explain for first. People assume, since the kid lives mostly with us, that I was the one carrying the kid, especially since I'm fat. And my girlfriend is the co-mother. When I tell them that it was my ex who carried, ooh, they get confused again. Why does she live there? Shouldn't she be with her real mom? Because that's what they're thinking. But only some of them dare say it. And some of them say it after a couple of wine. That the person who carried, that's the real mom. They ask about IVF, if we went to Denmark, or if we got it here in Norway. When I tell them neither, they end up so confused, I'm afraid they'll have a stroke if I don't out myself right quick. And that's, the only one, and that's only the ones who haven't seen me on the news know that I'm openly trans. With that crowd, it changes. My womanhood and motherhood comes into question. In much of the same way as being a lesbian mother who didn't carry, I get to experience both of those aspects. Now, most of the parents, they're positive. They're nice people. They think that upstanding citizens such as themselves don't have a problem with queer people. But with some of them, you can still feel their issues lie right beneath the surface. In a look, in a sentence begun but not finished. The motherhood, that must be proved. In actions, sense of clothes, so on. But forgive me if I think joining a mom's wine night where the only thing they discuss is how they're fixing their house and fixing their summer house and fixing their winter house instead of fixing their fucking relationship sounds fucking boring. <laughs> but in our daily life, outside of those rare instances, the question of me being a mother hardly ever comes up. My kid calls me mom. 
She's always done that. It's a given to most people. Yeah, that chubby lady's Aurora's mom. That chubby, other chubby lady's also Aurora's mom. And that chubby lady standing with that chubby dude is also Aurora's mom. And that guy, well, that guy's Dave. We don't talk about Dave. But being an open and public trans woman, my motherhood is a topic of hot debate. With me, usually not in the room. People coming into my commentaries to inform me that I can't be a mom and I will never be a mom, despite having been a mom for 12 years already. It seems they're a bit late to give me that notice, as you people usually are in my life, it seems. For the haters, I will never be a mom. That's fine. I don't care. If they want to let me live rent-free between their ears, I can do that too. I got space. But for the skeptics, it needs to be proved. And looking butch like I do, that does not help. Where was I? (laughs) I need to perform femininity in the muddly way, whatever that means. Not in a queer way, but in a straight-passing way. Any case, I'm gender incongruent, but seeing as I'm legally a woman since 2016, but legally a father, it seems like the country of Norway is uh, the one who's gender incongruent to me. Strange world. I don't have a mismatch. State has. Now, being a transparent people, they expect perfection. That everything is sunshine and we expected to nail the, we're expected to nail this thing perfectly. Failure is because you're trans. I have to be the perfect mother who never fucks up. On top of that, I'm an open queer trans woman and fat with a paid position in Norway's oldest and largest queer organization working with trans issues. If I'm not nailing it, whoops. I I, I would not been the best at allowing myself to not nail it either. And I'll give you an example before I'm done. Uh, Being who I am, people assume everyone in my household has, has the firmest grasp on sex, gender, gender roles, gender expression, trans, intersex, and all of that jazz. Um, and that me, my partner, and our kid were the wokest of the woke. We're expected to be that. People even expect my kid to be able to like hold lectures on trans issues in her class. They have not met my kid. <laughs> now, my kid is smart. She's caring. She's wonderful, but maybe not the best socially. That's fine. She's Norwegian. <laughs> she says things at times that make sense if you know her, but not if you don't. Also, at times, she finds me and my girlfriend incredibly boring, in in addition to being mentally miles away, thinking about more important things like video games, swimming, or bicycle, lunch tomorrow, whatever. This means that when we explain things to her, it's like throwing something non-sticky onto a non-sticky surface, desperately hoping something sticks. Now, we've done the trans talk many, many times over the years when she was younger, Uh, But when she was eight, we needed to get more specific with it uh, because she was starting to get questions in class uh, because of me. I was going to arm her with the right knowledge, right arguments, right rhetoric, make sure she understood everything. So I tried again with an age-appropriate talk about trans issues, explaining it, and she gave no visible reaction to the talk at all and asked no follow-up questions. I figured either she got all of this or she got none of this. We'll see how it plays out. And she said nothing until right before summer vacation. We were heading home from the store with her best friend at the time. They were running just ahead of us. And out of the blue, she suddenly shouts to her friend, Celine, I talked with mom and I'm going to be a boy for a while. (laughs) To which I could just hear myself yelling, God damn it, no, you're not going to be a boy. (laughs) I realized immediately how that sounded. And I look around, seeing the questioning faces of the people around, judging, not understanding that she had taken something else entirely out of that conversation we've had a couple of weeks prior, uh, earlier. I could feel the mental cheers of a thousand turfs simultaneously going, yes, we got her. Naturally, I canceled myself on the spot, and we had to do the whole talk over again. So she would realize that taking a summer vacation as a boy was not the point of the talk, (laughs) nor a thing somebody just does. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That was was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not used to following somebody who's going to be way funnier than me. 
And, I know, right? We, we should have just been, you know, yeah. we should cancel ourselves and, and just let Christine do the thing today. Somehow has a better American accent than me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'd love some water. Thank you so much for coming, Terry. Thank you. It's not been your first time in Norway, I found out. Actually, I was listening to this blog the other day. No, I was not listening to a blog. I was listening to a podcast, <laughs> as people do, the other day, uh, which was called... It, it's a funny podcast. It's called My Struggle, and it's um, supposed to be about Karl-Ove Knausgård, which you call Knausgård, I think. Yeah. Um, I saying, and I, am I not supposed to say Knausgård? Is it Knausgård? Uh, it's Knausgård. Oh, okay. Got yeah, it. Got but it. you have you have the K. <laughs> okay. Pretty good. But anyway, they were discussing. Tori was on the podcast, and they were discussing uh, how your novel. I think the podcast was from a couple of years ago, uh-huh. and your novel was coming out in uh, in Swedish, Finnish, Danish, but not in Norwegian. And you guys uh, were speculating about how this might have been because of some Norwegian character that yeah. Norwegian publishing. Uh, world just didn't like that much. There's, there's so I could, I could probably say we, we, we've forgiven you now. Yeah, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. It's, it's nice to be... Yeah, there was a, a character named Sebastian who um, is... Uh, he's, a, well, he's a fun guy, and, uh, but he definitely says some things that are not... It's not the, the nicest portrayal, which I think is an individual to him, but the fact that all of the other Scandinavians were like, yes, we're going to translate it, we're going to translate it. And it came in, came in, came in, and then I was like, Nor- Norway? <laughs> are you going to be... But Vidar came through uh, a year later, and uh, hopefully there's not like too many grudges about the Sebastian character. <laughs> Actually, there's even a, a small... There's, there's another little hint that's uh, more of like a love letter to Norway in it, I think, because you... Put some brown cheese on a very fancy cheese uh, uh-huh. platter somewhere in a restaurant, which is I don't know. Most Norwegians probably wouldn't have thought about that. Yeah, it, it it's I consider brown cheese kind of fancy. I don't know. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's like it tastes like caramel. You know, it's fancy. <laughs> but uh, no, I I I was here like 20 years ago. Uh, I had a bunch of. Uh, not a bunch of, but I, had, I lived in the Dominican Republic when I was 18, and I met a series of Norwegians, and I, I, it was, they were the first Europeans I met, and so I always had this sort of stereotype in my head of Norwegians as like very sophisticated, like European, <laughs> like, uh, you know, what other people would say, like sort of like continental glamour for me, that was Norwegians, because I hadn't actually met any other Europeans besides Norwegians. And, and it, it stayed through, so that's why like brown cheese is fancy. It's like the you know <laughs> the the most high European cheese to me. Yes, welcome to this like um, eating um, uh, eating hour at the literature. Yeah. No, we might uh, as well just go right at it with uh, with your novel. And you told me that you have gotten pretty good in the two and a half years since it came. Uh, yeah. at sort of saying real quick what the point of the, if if there's anybody here who hasn't read it, which. Shame on you. Well, but. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the, the quick story of it is that um, you could say it's the story of Reese, who I like to say is like Fleabag, but like trans and in Brooklyn. She's kind of a mess. She's sleeping with married men. And the action kicks off when her ex, Ames, who used to be a trans woman named Amy, but detransitioned, gets his boss pregnant, uh, but didn't mean to because he thought he was sterile, and then <laughs> returns to Reese to say, do you want to start a family together as a, as a triad in a kind of unconventional family form? And, and so that's the, that's the premise. It's actually just the first chapter. <laughs> uh, I realize it sounds a bit complicated, but it, you know, it actually is a setup for all of the drama that comes from there. And it's, it's sort of um, self-consciously uh, soap opera-ish in, in, the, in the way I like to deal with drama. A little, little heightens, but also, like honestly, trans life in Brooklyn is a bit soap opera-ish <laughs> all the time. Yeah, so I don't know. Do, do you want to read some yeah, from it uh, right away? So, so yeah. people who yes haven't read the book can, can so get a grasp. So it's Reese talking in, or not talking, but it's, it's her perspective. 
Right. Yes. So the this is just the first page for for Reese. Thank you for also lending me. I gave away my English books. This is great. <laughs> um, the question for Reese: Were married men just desperately attracted to her, or was the pool of men who were available to her as a trans woman only those who already locked down a cis wife and could now explore with her? The easy answer, the one that all her girls advocated, was to call men dogs. But now, here's Reese, sneaking around with another handsome, charming, motherfucking cheater. Look at her, wearing a black lace dress and sitting in his parked Beamer, waiting while he goes into Dwayne Reed to buy condoms. Then she's going to let him come over to her apartment, avoid the pointed glare of her roommate Iris, and have him fuck her right on the trite floral bedspread that the last married dude bought her so that her room would seem a little more girly and naughty when he snuck away from his wife. Reese had already diagnosed her own problem. She didn't know how to be alone. She fled from her own company, from her own solitude. Along with telling her how awful her cheating men were, her friends also told her that after two major breakups, she needed time to learn to be herself by herself. But she couldn't be alone in any kind of moderate way. Give her a week to herself and she began to isolate, cultivating an ash pile of loneliness that built on itself exponentially until she was daydreaming about selling everything and drifting away on a boat towards nowhere. To jolt herself back to life, she went on Grindr or Tinder or whatever and administered 10,000 volts to the heart by chasing the most dramatic tachycardia of an affair she could find. Married men were the best for fleeing loneliness because married men also didn't know how to be alone. Married men were experts at being together, at not letting go, no matter what, until death do us part. With the pretense of setting the boundaries of just an affair, Reese would swan, deep, swan dive super deep, super hard. By telling herself it would be just a fling, she gave herself permission to fulfill every fetish the guy had ever dreamed of, to unearth his every secret hurt, to debase herself in the most lush, vicious, and unsustainable ways, then collapse into resentment, sadness, and spite that had been just a fling, because hadn't she been brave enough and vulnerable enough to dive super deep, super hard? She saw herself as attractive, round face and full figure, but she didn't pretend that she stopped traffic, nor did she frequently note people standing around to admire the harvest of her brain. But with the right kind of man, she bore a genius for drama. She could distill it and flame it like jet fuel when solitude chilled her bones. Her man this time was similar to her others, a handsome, married, alpha type who put her on a leash in the bedroom. Only this one was better because he was an HIV-positive cowboy-turned-lawyer, he had a thing for trans girls and had seroconverted while cheating on his wife with a trans woman, and the wife had stayed with him, and now he was at it again with Reese. Wee! <laughs> There's a lot going on there. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know, just from this, uh, of, of course, I'm such a dork that I made all these cards, <laughs> and now I'm going to ask something completely different. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it strikes me that, in a way, that Reese is doing is having all these affairs with these married men. That she's, in a way, also seeing them. She, she's sort of liberating them from a heterosexual life, which in this book is very standard. It's very yeah. standardized. It's very much the the original married couple. And I, when we were talking earlier today, I, I told you that it was very American to me. This whole like husband and wife, till death do us part, the, the like divorced yeah. uh, women and all that. But then Christine was doing her talk and I realized that, well, you know, maybe I'm, I'm exagger exaggerating about yeah. Scandinavian liberation. I don't know. But, but do you think... Uh, it's interesting to me how, how a queer life or queer lifestyle is, is uh, discussed as something uh, that's both interesting to a lot of straight people or, or like slightly queer people that turn up in the novel, but also scary. Yeah. So. Well, I was writing this book, I think at a time when, when, at least in the United States, you had like a lot of essays by women with titles like heteropessimism. And, um, you know, it was, it was just before you had perhaps like mothers going to scream in the parks in COVID, but you had this sort of like ambient sense that like that like something isn't quite working in heterosexuality but also the problem is that the people who are in heterosexual relationships were heterosexual so 
it, like, so there was a sort of fantasy of like, well, if only I was queer, then these things that are plaguing me would, I, I could dissipate them. And so there was sort of an idea of like queerness that you could like pull off a shelf rather than like do the actual work of being like, why is my life hard? Like, why do I want to go to a park and scream? Why am I writing an essay called heteropessimism? You know, these are, <laughs> these were, um, so like in a certain way for me, the, the, the book is less about, you know, is, is queerness going to solve your problems or is heterosexuality going to solve your problems, which is, which is actually Reese's problem. Like Reese, Reese is a trans woman who thinks that like if only I could be a heterosexual woman, like all the cis women I know, all the problems that, that plague me would go away. And I think what I'm, what I'm trying to do with contrasting these various things is to basically say that there, there actually, there is no off-the-shelf solution. Like, there is no way that you can just sort of say, um, oh, my life's difficult, and if I just, if I just you know, uh, do a queer lifestyle, it'll work. If I just find a man and can get married, it'll work. Or even, and I, I think maybe even especially, I can just transition and all my problems will be solved. I think that's the real thing that's, that's actually the book is, is calling out. Yes, because the title, Detransition, Detransition Baby, it's, it's, it's interesting because it calls into, uh, in, into the open a topic that isn't discussed much, I think. You're also writing about it in the book that detransition is, is something that's, uh, I, I think you describe it both as boring and also as something that might set off the wrong kind of people to yeah. think the wrong kind of things. Yeah. So why did you decide to, to put it front and center in, uh, in well, this novel? I, I didn't know that I was going to write about detransition. The, it, what happened to me was that I, I first, the voice you heard in the, re, in the reading, that was Reese's voice, and the whole book started off in Reese's voice. And then I went to, um, and the book is a lot about things like regret and like how do you make mistakes, how do you move on from mistakes. But this thing happened where I went with, in, uh, I think I was writing this around 2000, this part happened maybe in 2015, which is before you could easily get uh, American healthcare to cover any sort of trans surgeries. So most trans people I know went to Mexico or Thailand for surgeries. And um, oftentimes we'd go with each other. Like one of us would, would have something and the other one would be a nurse. So one of my friends was getting a surgery and I went along to sort of be her nurse as she was recovering. And um, my passport had not yet been changed. So it, it had uh, you know, an M as, the, as a gender designation and we were going to Mexico, to Guadalajara. And I imagined like, oh, I actually really don't want to go through customs trying to explain the discrepancy between how I look and what's like the picture on, the, on my old passport and stuff. So I had this like old suit in my closet and I put, it was like kind of like a really sleazy like reservoir dog suit. <laughs> and, I, I, and I was like, well, this will work. And so I put on this like sleazy, like, you know, black suit, white shirt, skinny black tie. And I went and uh, I got through customs and they, it was fine. And then I found out that they had lost my suitcase. And so all I had was this like, like, <laughs> ridiculous gangster suit <laughs> and and I spent basically like a week like my friend was just you know couldn't talk or anything and so I spent a week basically wandering around Guadalajara as this like androgynous reservoir dog <laughs> and it made me remember a lot of things about what it's like to travel as a man like actually how easy it is and like how much I kind of miss that ease like and things that you know you're, you're not supposed to admit that actually it felt really good to like walk into a place and have somebody think that I was formidable and that maybe you wouldn't mess with me or something. I, it could have just been the suit, but either way, that, that whole thing, I, I was like, oh, I miss this. And then at the same time that I was like kind of enjoying that return, I was feeling more and more dissociated from myself, like I was watching myself in a movie doing this kind of thing. And I came back and I... I started writing from like the voice of how I felt when I was in that suit and that became Ames's voice and I kind of explored that ambivalence about what it meant what it might mean to transition or detransition what how what you might get back you know why you might actually do this calculus between okay I've, I I want to live as a woman but the world rewards me so much 
if I live as a man. And I want it to be this kind of, that's, that's basically what I wanted to, the book to mm. be. And then I kept on talking about it, and, and all these people were like, you're going to talk about detrans, like trans people were like, you're going to talk about detransition, like isn't that going to give like weapons to all of the bigots? Like, and, and more and more I got like angry as, as people said this to me, because I was like, listen, you know, detransition, in order to detransition, you have to first transition. So it doesn't belong to anybody who doesn't have that looming. You have to transition first. And, and then, you know, obviously, the, the reasons that, that people detransition are like the calculus that Ames is doing. You're doing it because you, you, might, you might want your family to talk to you. You might want to be able to get a job. You might want to do these various things. Not because you regret it and you made this terrible mistake. No, and I think it's interesting as well as because Ames at some point is talking about or is thinking about uh, detransitioning and about the, the exhaustion of being vulnerable. Yeah. Whereas Reese, it, it, it's interesting to me that there's such a, a big contrast between the two of them. Their, their, um, their viewpoint of... Uh, both of them see women as vulnerable yeah. uh, to both violence and, and, and in social situations, in different situations. And whereas Re Ames doesn't... He, he feels like he can't handle that in the long run. It, it's too... It's too hard on him. Yeah. And whereas Reese, in a number of scenes, is uh, she, she she's longing for that vulnerability. This, yeah. this, this like, which to her is is womanhood. And I, I mean, I must confess, to me, when I read that, I was like, what? I yeah. mean, <laughs> there are some some scenes in the book, especially when she's having sex with some of the married men, where Reese is thinking about women womanhood. Yeah. This word, I, I can't seem to pronounce it. Womanhood. <laughs> But, um, and, and she's associating it with being uh, vulnerable. Yeah. So can, can, can you tell us something about well, her, her way of... It's not, the it? thing is, I think it's not just Reese's way. And that's like part of like what the book is saying. Is that, so there's a part here where, where in the book where Reese is, you know, she's dating these problematic men, these married men, And there's a way in which, like, some of these violent, violent men, men uh, are abusive to her, and she she finds that confirming to her gender. And um, obviously, that's problematic. But the thing is, like, my question is, that is that is, if that is out there in society, and you see that many women are are being taught that, why would it be any different for trans women? Why wouldn't trans women inherit all of the same? kind of like messed up ways of eroticizing, uh, you know, sexism that everybody else does. And part of the point of that section is, is I literally quote Sylvia Plath in there, every woman adores a fascist. That's not my expression, that's Sylvia Plath. And so my question is, why is it when a trans woman, why is it that when a trans woman says that sort of thing, it, it means that she's a, a misogynist, she fetishizes violence, And yet when Sylvia Plath says it, or certainly Lana Del Rey, you know... Uh, Only or, look at the Tradwives hashtag on TikTok. Tradwives, <laughs> you know, all of this stuff. Like, he hit me and it felt like a kiss, right? That's, that's, I didn't write that lyric, you know? And so why is that feminist? Why is that romantic? Why is that beautiful? But when a trans woman has these same sort of, th same sort of you know, urges, it's bad. And, and one of the things that I think the book is exploring is the difference between the things you want and the things that you think are, are, are good or, or right or, or politically good. That lots of times, people want things that are bad for them. And what do you actually do with that? You know, how do you actually process that and move through it? So I think actually that's one of the most interesting things in the book is the way these characters are discussing uh, both the thoughts that they, are, they, they feel they should, uh, should have and should speak out, but also the, the more like forbidden lusts uh, associated with, with body issues, with gender, with yeah. all kinds of it. And, and did, you, did you think about that when you were writing? Because you t you've told me before that you wrote this book mostly for a trans audience when you started on it. Yeah, I, did, I thought about two things. You know, one is that, um, I'm going to answer that question in two ways. One is that I, I was writing this book largely 
to solve some problems for myself, that I think that fiction can be a kind of a test case. Like I was in my 30s, I was on the far side of transition. You know, many of the books that I read about being trans were about transition. And the question is, what do you do next? And if I wanted fiction to be, to, to, that I think fiction, you can kind of create these characters, then you send them in the world and they can you know, make mistakes for you a little bit. And so you don't have to make them yourself. And the only way to actually do that in a way that would actually give me answers is to give these characters all of the same problems that I have, which is to say to not make them heroic stories of resilience uh, that are perfect you know, and work well as, as sort of political stories, but to actually say these are characters who have to have the problems that, that I have or have to have worse problems than me if I'm going to actually figure this stuff out. And... I felt very safe in doing that at the time because I came from this trans writing scene in Brooklyn that started in 2013. And the idea of that trans writing scene was trans women writing for other trans women. And this sounds like, um, you know, this sounds like it's a political thing, but actually it's an aesthetic thing. It actually changes what you can write. Because when I was writing for other trans women, it meant that I never had to stop and explain. I never had to stop and say, yes, this Reese is sleeping with married men. Yes, there's bug chasing on page seven. Like, yes, there's like all these things that are like, because trans women already understood. And so therefore I could, this actually changed the story in that I, I wasn't stopping to explain myself. And so I could actually hit a kind of speed and velocity in the story. And then on top of that, it meant that, um, I, because I was imagining other trans women, I had to tell them things that they didn't already know. Like telling other trans women, like, hey, sometimes some of us sleep with married men. You know, <laughs> that is not news. You know, or, or sometimes, you know, especially the stuff that, that, that was in sort of the older memoirs about like, here's how hormones work, here's how this works. You know, if I told other trans women that, they would, they would yawn at me, they'd be bored. So I had to actually tell them things that, that, that brought a higher level of insight. And the truth is, I think, is that when you hit that higher level of insight, everybody benefits from it. It's not, it's not just simply trans women. And, and this is something that, in that scene, we took from Toni Morrison, who wrote explicitly for black women, and as a result, she was able to write these books that, you know, she didn't slow down. She didn't explain what words meant. And she was able to write these books that, you know, basically changed American literature. And I think one of the things that actually to me, this is what, what makes The Transition Baby a very good novel as well, because I personally love to be, when a novel puts me in a space where, I'm, where I don't belong, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to peek in. I mean, as a, as a straight woman, I'm, there's a lot here that's new for me, but... It's also NCIS. and but it, it, it's it's written in this tone that it's like I don't know. It gives an insight also in a, in a scene and and Emilio in New York, which is very specific and it feels very specific and it feels very taken from life uh, as you know uh, as opposed to if you're just writing. I know, it's a story with a brave character or whatever. But still, there's another thing, obviously, when you said that you had to do something that would um, make other trans people interested or, or you, you should do something to keep yeah. their interest. And you're doing a very interesting thing. You're throwing a baby in the mix. Just yes. from, from yes. about page, not page one, but very early in the story, there is a, well, maybe more of a Schrodinger's baby because yeah. it, the baby might or might not be there for large parts of no, the book. No, it's a Schrodinger's so. baby is a great description of the baby in this. Um, there's a bunch of different themes there that I want to pick up. One is that actually as a straight woman, the book is in the end for you. Uh, I'm not divorced, though. You're not divorced, <laughs> but, you know, fingers crossed. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, no, but it is, it, it, you know, the divorce thing is, is really like a, a little bit of a red herring, like a little bit of a... It, what, it, what, I, what I was realizing as I was writing this book is I was part of that scene and I was writing for other trans women. And the thing is that, that actually being in a scene with other trans women, you fight a lot, you argue a lot, you don't actually agree with what, you know, it's not like there's one sort of, here's what the trans way of doing this is. So I would say, 
I'm going to do it this style. And, you know, I'd go to a reading and I'd share it and people would be like, that sucked, you know? <laughs> and, and, or, you know, some of them would. And I began to think, like, okay, what's the difference here? Like, who am I actually writing for if, if, if some of the people like it and some of the people don't? And, and, the, and I'm, I'm using this identity category, and I still kind of believe in the identity category, but what I believe even more in is kind of affinity. And I began to basically be like, okay, like who, who do I actually have affinity with inside the trans community? And I'll write for those trans readers that I have like an affinity with me. And then I began to think like, well, why am I stopping at the line of, 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 of trans readers? Maybe I have affinity with all these other readers. And that like that affinity doesn't mean that I have to like start pandering to them, that I have to start saying like, oh, here's something for you, straight reader, that I can actually trust that if the straight reader has affinity with the stuff that I'm writing, that they can hear about it in a trans context and not lose their minds. You know, like, I, I was reading the Affronte series as I wrote this, and I wasn't like, I was like, okay, this is a great story about a working class Italian in Naples in, in, in 1950, but it'd be really great if she was trans, and then I could understand her story. <laughs> uh, you know, I... I the work of literature is that you, you can actually have that empathy across bridges or across difference. And the question for me is like, why, why wouldn't a reader like you have that same empathy across distance for a trans character that I had for Elena Ferrante or that I had for Rachel Cusk or that I had for Rachel Kushner or like any number of other authors where I wasn't like, make it exactly my life. <laughs> so that I can actually understand it. Yes, I, uh, I understand that. And actually, I felt, a, uh, we've talked a lot about this in, in general. In, in feminism, this is discussed a lot, like women readers, girl readers start reading men. Everybody yeah. reads men. Yeah. Everybody learns to read men. And at some point, uh, I, I think, I don't know, in a way that's, that makes readers who realize that you don't have to be the same as yeah. the person you're reading about. But there is a thing that, uh, I mean, a large part of the, of the novel is about motherhood. And yeah. this, is, this is one of the, the parts where it really, re, I, felt, I felt I, re, uh, what do you call it? Affinity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With uh, several characters in the story. Because you have these three women. You have Reese. Um, well, you have Ames, who is detransitioned. But he's still, in a large part, uh, feeling, uh, I mean, his gender is yeah. female and he's... he's Discussing this whole uh, the, the baby issue very much from uh, this perspective, I think. And then there's Katrina, his boss, yeah. uh, who has become pregnant. And it's 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 interesting to me how each three of them have these very different views on what uh, what a mother is, what motherhood means to them. And I mean, Reese has this very natural, very, very, very much. Um, uh, what, what do you say? It's, it's like a physical hunger. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a jealousy of the body, as she st- says at some point. Mm-hmm. It's this feeling of, of course, she wants to be a mother. Uh, whereas Ames, I think, has a lot of. Uh, he has difficulty even grasping the concept, yeah. I think. And then you have Katrina, who is uh, the cis woman in this tale, who has this anxiety about becoming or not becoming a mother, which is probably the thing that's. I don't know, a topic that many essays and many books have been written about, the 30-something yeah. woman who can't have it all. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's interesting. And at some point, Katrina says a thing that sounded, to me at least, very universal. She says that motherhood is just some vague test designed to ensure that everyone feels inadequate. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I, th- I think it's... it's Probably your way of discussing this whole what what you were just talking about this this idea of or this myth or idea of motherhood will, could be a thing that makes everything fall into place. If yeah, that, that would. I mean, um, I think that there there is that myth of motherhood, and, and in some ways, for me, like I wrote about motherhood, like as you say, this it's a Schrodinger's baby. Like it's not actually about motherhood, right? The baby never shows up. Spoiler. Sorry. <laughs> The baby never shows up, except maybe in the last sentence. And when the actual, you know, as, as, 
as Christine's intro shows, like when you actually have a child, all of your planning, all of your ideas about what a, what a baby will be go out the window. And so in a certain way, this book is about the planning, the thinking of, of what it might be to have a baby. But the, the, the what kind of, I had something I wanted to say this. Ah, yes. The, the, I think the thing that, like what I'm looking for with a lot of these characters is actually common ground. And so they are, they each have their own different ways of dealing with it. And, and part of the book is about, you know, how do you actually look at your, look past your own problems to, to make a hard decision in a clear-eyed way, whether that decision is have a baby, whether it's get divorced, whether it's transition, whether it's detransition. How do you not like let your own coping mechanisms, your own like patterns, your own like narratives occlude that so you can't actually see what you're doing? And a lot of the book is, is about the characters just being able to ask themselves those questions clearly. But on the question of failure, that specific quote, to me, most of the solidarity that I feel, not just with other uh, trans women, but with cis women, is, is on the level of failure. Like, it's on the <laughs> level of like, it's like, you know, when I first transitioned, I was like, oh my God, I walk into a room and I feel like I'm failing as a woman all the time. I feel like people are judging me. I feel like people are looking and are you doing this right? Are you doing that right? Are you performing in this way or that way? And, you know, then I would actually listen to cis women and they'd be saying the exact same thing, right? That like the whole thing is about, is about feeling like you're failing all the time, like you're not and doing it right. And about performance. And about performing it. I mean, every week in a Norwegian newspaper, you can read, a, read some opinion piece about you know, those moms who bake all the time and make the other mothers feel yeah. like they also should bake all the time. And you know, the, all, all these kind yeah. of small, small things that make, make other people feel inadequate in a role. And there's so many wrong ways to be a mother, actually. You know, like there, there's, there's people in the United States, you have like, oh, you're an immigrant and you had too many kids. That's mm. the wrong way to be a mother. Oh, you're a single mom. That's the wrong way to be a mother. Oh, you know, you could go on and on. You can't bake enough. That's the <laughs> wrong way to be a mother. You know, all these different ways in which you can fail and very few plausible ways in which you can succeed. In fact, I can't think of any because I can't, you know, you talk to adults and what do adults say all the time? They, they're constantly at least I am, and most people I know are like constantly thinking about our parents and like, what was up with my parents? Why were they that way? <laughs> you know, that is what it means to be a child is mm. to have these parents who are like, well, they did what they could, mm. you know, at best. Um, it's, a, it's a story of failure. And the failure is actually like where you find the solidarity, whether that be about womanhood, whether that be about motherhood, whether that be about, a, a, you know, uh, a lot of the differences between these characters, they, the, the glue is actually, they've made huge mistakes, they lie to themselves, and how can they actually make a family given that propensity and that history? Mm. Which is everybody. Yes, I think so. I think it's everybody. Sorry, it's, it's, the one person in the crowd who is perfect. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not you. <laughs> But there's another kind of motherhood as well. In, I yeah. mean, there's many kinds of motherhood in, in the novel, but uh, the notion of trans motherhood was new to me. Yeah. But it, it's interesting because um, this is mostly Reese who is saying that she so much wants to be a mother that she starts mothering everybody else. She's yeah. making everybody her children. And I've, I've understood that this is also uh, a way for trans women to, to, to make... Uh, to, to, to be there, uh, to, to make a family, to build a family. Yeah. So could you say anything more about that? Yeah, you know, I think that's, there's this term that it mostly came from sort of the ballroom drag kind of scene in New York where you had mothers and then you had their sort of daughters, which would be the mothers would be people who'd been out a while and the daughters would be people who were recently out who would go to, um, you know, go to these other women and basically be cared for. And like, you know, I had that. I, 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 it wasn't like we explicitly like called them mom or something. That would be weird. But you know, it was people who I, I relied on a little more than I probably would rely on an adult. Like a little, little more. The ask was a little deeper. And then as I got, you know, older, I started having trans women who'd come out 
more recently come to me and basically be like, you know, it was in everything that you sort of ask people, like not just like where do you get hormones or where do you get clothes or, you know, that kind of stuff, but also like, you know, I'm seeing this guy and he's doing X, Y, Z, which is, seems, makes me feel terrible. Like, what should I do about it? You know, these, these, is this normal? Is this, is this just what it's like to date as a woman? Any of these things. And, um, and, and, and that, those relationships had a, had a familiar, familial thing in both good ways and bad ways. Like, I think families... Part of the reason why the mother-daughter thing is, has, has salience is because also mother-daughter relationships, while they're like wonderful, they're also so difficult. And, and they have all these intertwining responsibilities and resentments. And so like my history with my trans daughters isn't just like I showed them things and it was great. It was also that I was like, you know, I felt put upon. I was like, why am I responsible? You're 32. You know, <laughs> what are you doing calling me at 10 in the, in the, in the, on a Sunday to figure out this stuff? Like, or, or equally, I would be like, listen, this is what you have to do. Like, I, I, don't you dare think that you're going to, you know, go off in whatever, young lady, you know? <laughs> and and she'd be like, I'm 32, you know? <laughs> and, 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 and that the, the actual, the motherhood there is, 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 is a has is an accurate term, not just because it's like, okay, yeah, we want motherhood and, and sort of maternal instincts are satisfied, but because it also talks about the difficulty of making ties with people that aren't just casual, that entail real responsibility that you can't just sever because you had a fight with somebody, you don't like them anymore. You know, that's that's not that's not kind of the depth of, of some of these relationships. Hmm. Do you think that, um, because the book is also about discussing different ways to form a family. I mean, these three are discussing a sort of triad form and there, there, there are other uh, glimpses of other family lives that, that are uh, non-traditional. Do you think that if, uh, if, it, if it would become more normal to, to uh, have families that look different, that that's include more people, other people, would, what would happen to this this familial familiar thing in within the queer community? Would it would it alter that? I mean, it's or? it's interesting. I th I feel like the book for me, like I'm asking this question now because I think it's actually something that like my generation uh, has to figure out. Is that like it was written in a climate of like the hetero pessimism, but it was also written in a climate of a lot of queer people I know being like. I actually really want commitment. I actually am not like super radical in what makes me feel safe and grounded. Like I actually may want a partner for life. And I, I want to be radical. I don't want to be assimilationist. And yet I just want to be monogamous and get married in a church or whatever it is. You know, I want that feeling of safety. And, and so how do you get that without recapitulating everything that you're trying to get away from? And meanwhile... You know, if you want to, uh, if you are, you know, in a nuclear family and you want to discover a different form, how do you actually not, how do you actually deal with like the the, the difficulties that come with queerness? Not just uh, because it's complicated to like manage that sort of stuff, but also because y you may in fact encounter prejudice, which many people think they want queerness until the first person says something hateful to them. You know, that's was the Katrina's case, right? Mm -hmm. Katrina wanted queerness until she was like, oh, I'm actually going to have to give up a whole lot mm -hmm. in order to have this. And, you know, it's interesting, like, I actually really appreciate what Christine was saying about that, that like, kind of what I'm saying in this, in, in I think of this book, is that what I want people to do is not say, like, oh, I want to be queer, or, oh, I want to be heterosexual, but to actually be like, what does it mean to ask yourself an honest question about what you want? What does it mean to actually say, this is what I want, and take all of the elements from all these different things and put together a life that doesn't make you miserable? How do you do that? You know, and, and a lot of it's about a lot a lot of it's about not lying to yourself, but a lot of it's about not necessarily caring what those labels are. The thing that you said that I thought was really interesting is like that the queer family that's being proposed in this 
is actually very similar to just a divorced family, right? And that actually divorced families, a lot of people are super happy being divorced. Like they, they at least in the United States, you'll have like <laughs> divorced, divorced moms who all the other moms are like, oh, you have two nights off a week? I'm so jealous of you. <laughs> and it's like, you too can get divorced. Or, <laughs> or maybe you should just, I don't know, yeah. don't be so hetero about it. Yeah, or you, can, or, you can, or you can, I mean, be, being facetious about that, but or you can set up your life in which yes. you, you, you arrange a situation. And you don't actually need to even bring any queer people in to do it. <laughs> you can do this as like three or four or five heterosexual people. You can be like, how are we going to actually make a life that doesn't you know, make us scream in parks or whatever? <laughs> and the, the interesting thing to me is like, what actually, why do people, like, so this has a label queer in it. They're making a queer family, I guess. I don't even know if I use the label queer in queer family making, but I got asked a lot about queer family making. And I don't actually think I'm do, talking about queer family making. I'm just talking about family making that is okay. How do you make a family in a way that's okay whether you're queer or whether you're straight? And, and I don't have an answer to that. Uh, you know, but I do have, I think, or the, I put the characters through a process for asking those questions honestly. Mm. And I think that's also what makes it relatable to whoever yeah. probably who's... I don't know, in their 30s, might have thought about these, these things. What do I want to do? Which one of the several yeah. things? But also, I, I don't think there's so much time, so maybe we should just not end on a very dark note um. and talk about... Or do you? Do you want to talk about what's... Yeah, which actually, uh, we talked a bit about like political climate, yeah. uh, which is happening right now I before. Mean, and we could, we could talk about if that. If people don't know, you know, you're... You're an expert on... Yeah, you're an expert. I'm an expert on ending on dark notes. <laughs> yeah. Discussions. yeah, you're an expert no. on kind of the rise of, of, the, of the right wing. And, and, you know, certainly we're like in a moral panic uh, around trans stuff. And that I started this book in, in, in 2015. And the way I talk about this book now versus how I talked about it then and how free I feel to talk about, hey, I'm a trans person writing problematic characters and I think I should have the freedom to, to make mistakes in art. You know, I, I used to be able to talk about some weird trans idea in front of an audience and people would be like, oh yeah, that's like whatever. It's like I was talking about like the mating rituals of some bird or something. You know, <laughs> people were like, that's an interesting fact. It actually has nothing to do with me. And now I think we're in a climate where Everybody, maybe not in Norway, it may be different, but in the United States, everybody has an opinion about what it means to be trans. And me, I don't feel the freedom to just throw out ideas and see how it goes because I feel like they could end up in the news. They could end up being justification to take away somebody's health care. My friends will literally write a piece of art that will then get mentioned by politicians who write bills who then take away rights. And... It's really, you know, I, I, I so appreciate the work of activists, you know, but I'm a novelist and it's so strange to try and be a novelist and make the space to like, to do that in, in this climate. And I, I, I don't know, I actually think it's really important to talk about. Yes, it is. I, I've been reading, um, I've been reading Susan Faludi's book Backlash, which is from 1991, I think, yeah. which is about the backlash uh, in, to fa uh, towards feminism in America in, in the 80s and early 90s. And in that book, she writes, the anti-feminism backlash has, be has been set up not by women's achievement of full equality, but by the increased possibility that they might win it. It's a preemptive strike. And it struck me so much when I read that because I was like, this is what is happening to trans people right now. It's at the same time as rights are being... Uh, I mean, it's, it's so short ago that even in Norway that it's, uh, it's become possible to change, uh, to change your uh, legal... What is it? Yes. Legal gender markers? Le yes, thank you. Uh, without yeah. getting sterilized, yeah. which is crazy to think about. And it's such a short time ago, and it's only now, I mean, other things have been changed like maybe a couple of years ago. And, and I don't know, this backlash that's coming is, is, is frightening to me. And also, when I was writing about uh, the alt-right or, or like uh, the extreme right, 
uh, right-wing populism, right-wing extremism, I noticed at some point that there was this like weird movement towards from from talking about immigration to talking a lot about queer people and and sexuality, trans uh, trans rights, pride, and. To me, it's, I don't know, now I'm just starting a long monologue that I don't know. No, I mean, it's, it's, uh, but but, but it's, it's scary to me how different kinds of uh, other kinds of activists, like, like feminists, radical feminists, could hop onto that bandwagon, which we now see, for example, in Florida, is not making life as a woman easier either. I mean, there it's like abortion after week six. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and it, the, I don't know. Well, I'm sorry. I just no, I'm just ranting. No, but I think you're right. I mean, one of the things for me is like for and I and I, I think in some ways, I believe the sort of like liberal progress narrative for much of my life that like things get better, things get better, things get better. And you know, if I look at history, it's not true. Things can get worse. Things often get worse. And I wrote this book. You know, I started in 2015, and I had this sense that that we were winning. You know that trans people were winning. At least in 2014, it was it was the tipping point. We were getting we were getting uh, healthcare covered in the United States. We were getting our shows, not just shows about trans people, but shows by trans people were getting on television. I wrote a book by a trans person. It got published on a major press, and I was like, "We're winning." And I am in this place right now where it's like, actually, also, how do I make art? That is a little bit about losing, about a place of constriction, about you know how do you how do you how do you tell people like yes go on keep doing it when when you're in that place and I I don't know I hope that's like sort of some of the things I begin to answer in in my next book, um, but the, just to pick up one last point that you said, you know the thing that I think about with trans people is that trans people have become very convenient for taking away the rights of everybody else and that you know I saw on, on, on YouTube was on Twitter just to, a couple days ago a video of uh, a cis woman uh, getting her, getting the police called on her in a bathroom in the United States right she wasn't trans it was just, just a cis woman who was wearing pants and uh, and this was you know shocking um, and it's like that's what you actually get with this is that like it's it's actually a way to control everybody. So suddenly it's like it's not just like trans people like how can I go to the bathroom in a way that I won't get harassed? Which by the way is like that even that fact that we're fighting about that is the most undignified fight. And it's like that's chosen on purpose. It's 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 chosen so that to have a fight about a bathroom, the person who says please let me pee sounds undignified right from the start. When you have that fight, then suddenly it, it's a great way to start policing all sorts of women, right? Who, what am I wearing? Do I get to go in? Who do I have to ask permission to, to do this, to, to go to the bathroom? And obviously that leads to the questions of, of, of bodily autonomy that lead into abortion. And so the fact that they're all going away at the same time under the guise of like, let's get trans people or you know, let's protect children or whatever it is, is 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 not an accident. No, the difference being, I think maybe if if we're going to end on a more, yeah, I don't know, mo not 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 like stupidly optimistic, but yeah. maybe at least like a kind of ray of light kind of thing. I'm, I always try this when I'm talking about my book about right, yeah. right wing extremism. It's hard. It's <laughs> no, but I think there is a difference uh, when it comes to backlash. Every every step of the way towards liberation of different groups has been met with backlash, with yeah. extreme backlash in some, in some cases. But the thing that has been, there's always something that has changed within, uh, in between. It's not like everybody just reverts back to yeah. how it was before because there's lots more people who have been, uh, who now know that they know trans people, for example, or yeah. who now know that their neighbor is a homosexual and then they can't you know, have this like, general ideas longer because... They think like, well, you know, he deserves love. Yeah. <laughs> my neighbor does. And maybe, you know, there's, there's more people who have read your book and other books by, by trans people and have seen, seen trans people talking about things 
and realize that you know it's 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 not a th- it's not a threat or, or like this re- weird abstract yeah. group uh, coming to get us. Yeah, I agree so. with you. I actually think that that's and this is a good place to end. I think is that actually I think that's the role of art. Like you, you can convince people only so much through like you know a direct on like intellectual attack or you know whatever it is that you're doing. But oftentimes with art, what you're doing is you're just making people be friends with your characters, or at least in novels, they're, they're your friends. And once people are their friends, they're not actually thinking like, let me go through a criteria of, uh, you know, what actually makes for the right healthcare or whatever that is. They're just thinking, is that do I have a friend, it, you know, and do I want the rights of my friends taken away? Um, and even if I disagree with my friends about some stuff, most people are like, no, I don't want that. And for me, that's like, that's why I, that's why I, I, I write novels. It's why I like, I am a huge, yeah, I just, I believe, I believe in art and I believe really, really especially in trans art, especially at this moment. Yes. Thank you very <laughs> Thank much. Thank you so much. <clears throat> You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek. <laughs>